Do you ever read a story in the Bible and just go, huh? You know, some stories in the Bible are really straightforward and others are a little harder to figure out. And today, as we continue in our series of the book of Luke, we've come to a parable that many people consider to be one of the trickiest parables to interpret in the entire Bible. Uh, The meaning is certainly there, but you might just not see it if you're just kind of reading straight through the Bible, you know, while sipping your morning coffee. So we're going to take some time and we're going to try and unpack this tricky parable from the book of Luke. So uh, if you want to go get your Bibles, uh, pause this if you need to. We are in Luke chapter 16, uh, right at verse 1. Here's what the Word of God says. It says, Jesus told his disciples, so he's going to start telling the story now, a parable. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. It's Christians. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Okay, this is a parable that causes a lot of people to just sort of do a double take when they read it the first time. It almost seems like Jesus is commending the man for being dishonest, which he certainly isn't doing at all. So let's start to unpack the story. So you got this rich man, And the rich man has a manager who's basically in charge of all of his money and his assets. And the manager uh, hasn't done a really good job, whether he he lost the money or he was careless or he was taking some for himself. We don't really know, but he's lost a lot of the boss's money, and so he's getting fired. And the rich man basically has told the manager, hey, you know, before you go, get your books in order, but uh, basically you're fired. So this manager knows that there is no way that he is ever going to get a great job like this in this industry again. His boss like isn't going to give him a good reference, right? And so he thinks, I'm going to be on the street begging or something like that. And so he comes up with a plan. He calls up some people who owe his master money, and he says, how much do you owe? And they say, well, it's 900. He says, well, what if we make it 450 and so on and so forth? Now, why is he doing this? 
Well, what he's doing is he's plotting his next move. We're, we're told in verse 4 that he wants to be welcome into someone else's house after he gets fired. He's trying to find his next job, essentially. And who is going to love him and give him a job? Well, if you owed 900 and now they turn it into 450, you might just offer this guy a job. So he's using his master's money to help him in his next stage of life. And apparently, this is kind of the shocking part of the parable, apparently his master isn't even all that mad about it. Verse 8 tells us that the master commended his old manager because he acted shrewdly. Now, that's not a word that we use all that often. It just means he acted, uh, he was smart. He was savvy with his business and relational skills. You kind of get this feeling from the parable that if you were to see the boss, the rich man on the street, and said, hey, what do you think of your old manager? that he might say something like, well, I can't say that I really trust him all that much anymore, but wow, he is a, he is a savvy businessman. That, that's what Jesus is trying to get across through this story. Okay, that's interesting, but like, what is the point of it? What is Jesus trying to teach us through this parable? And why does Jesus use this manager of all people as an example to us? Now, Jesus is not commending dishonesty here, but he's commending the shrewd, smart use of money. So take a look one more time at the second half of verse 8 and verse 9. Jesus says this, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light, Christians. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And really the meaning of the Greek there, of the passage is, you will be welcomed by the people that you made your new friends. In fact, you read any other translation, that actually comes through really easily. This is the point of the parable. Worldly people, non-Christians, are often much more shrewd smart, savvy than Christians when it comes to boldly investing their money and seeing opportunities for the next stage of life. But Jesus is saying that Christians should be even more shrewd when it comes to investing our money for the next real stage of life, which is heaven. But here's the thing. You can't be obedient obedient to this passage in Luke 16. You will not be obedient to Jesus' teaching here if you first don't understand that all of your talents, all of your gifts, all of your money, all of your life is owned by God. See, right out of the gate in this parable, the roles matter. Jesus is teaching something. He wants you to see that what you have isn't really yours. You're managing your master's money, your master's talents. But this is hard for us. I mean, we're Americans, right? We, we're, we like being sort of self-made. We like our independence. We just, we, oh, we want to rebel against this notion that the money we have is God's. Right inside, we want to say, hold on a second. I worked hard for what I got, and it's mine. You say, I, I, I worked so hard to get promoted in this company. I went to college, I went to graduate school, I worked my tail off. And that all may be true, but why are you still even breathing? It's because of God. Why are you alive? It's because of God. And think about this. Yes, you may be a hard worker, but you also will, many of you, born into great circumstances. You could have been born in Haiti. You could have been born in China 100 years ago and 
died in the great famine of 1960. Almost 30 million people died. You could have been a really hard worker, been lived during the bubonic plague of Europe. See, everything you have, every breath, every opportunity is all from God. And the manager in the parable, he knows this. He's going to have to give an account for what he did with his master's money. And, and so will we. When you meet God someday, how will you answer him? When he asks you, what have you done with all the years I gave you? What have you done with all the gifts and talents I gave you? What have you done with all of the money that I lent to you? How will you answer that question? You know, not that long ago, I read about a man who owned an oil field. And one day, he hit a, a gusher, and suddenly, just like that, he was worth about twice as much. Well, the next day, his friend comes up to him and he says, what does it feel like to just wake up the next morning and have twice as much money as you had the day before? And listen to his answer. This Christian man said this. He said, my assets haven't changed. I didn't own the first money, and so I own the same amount now as I did yesterday, which is zero. I just now feel added responsibility to God to manage now even this new asset well. And so if your life is going to be used for God's purposes and you are managing his money, then how should we use it? Well, to start with, the Bible talks about giving at least 10% of what we have back to God for his purposes. And according to this parable, we should be using our money shrewdly wisely when it comes to investing in the next stage of life, which is in heaven, in eternity. And we're told that our money is to be used to gain friends who will welcome us into eternity. That means we're supposed to use our money to help people start a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Because that's the only investment that you can make that's eternal. The returns are eternal. Like you could invest in stock, you can invest in gold, or you can invest in Bitcoin if you want to, but it's all going to fade away, or you will fade away first. But those things that you do, that you invest in, that help lead people to Jesus, will lead to people meeting Jesus, and those same people will be the ones welcome you, welcoming you into heaven, the Bible says. That, I mean, that's a cool picture. And Jesus isn't just recommending this as some sort of nice platitude. He's saying he wants you to be shrewd about it, about your eternal investment. Smart, savvy, determined, dedicated. Like It should bring great sadness to us that there are more people in the world that know about Coca-Cola and McDonald's than know about Jesus Christ. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, you ought, to, you ought to learn from the worldly folks that are making sure McDonald's gets around the world. Because they're shrewd about it. And we should bring that same shrewdness to investing and spreading the name of Jesus Christ. But what does that look like? Like, how do you do that? Well, think of it this way. Okay, what if someone gave you $5,000 and they said, here's $5,000, but here's the deal. You can only spend this on something that will help show Jesus to people. How would you spend it? This is a good thought exercise. Start thinking shrewdly about that because realize God has already lent you 
some of his money for that exact purpose. Now, there are a thousand ways that you can use the master's money to help with the next stage of life. It's as simple as giving to your church, right? That's the foundational way to get started. If you've never started that, start giving online today. For those of you that have given to our building project uh, over the years, know that the money that you gave is going to help people, so many people, meet Jesus and go to heaven. That's an eternal investment. But I think applying this passage goes much beyond simply just giving money to your church. It's in how you handle all of your money. Well, let me explain it this way. Now, I don't know what it looks like today, but uh, back in the 1970s, uh, in the city of uh, Cairo, Egypt, uh, they had their own unique version of poverty called the Garbage City. Uh, see, each morning at dawn, some 7,000 garbage collectors on horse carts would go into the city of Cairo, and they would collect the garbage of 7 million inhabitants, and they would bring it back to their home, and they basically would sort through the garbage, seeing if there was anything of use to them. Well, one day, one of these poor men, and these were, these were the poorest of the poor, the outcasts of the outcasts, one of the men discovered the watch of a young, wealthy Egyptian businessman. In fact, this watch alone was worth $11,000 in modern-day money. <laughs> That's crazy. And this man, this poor man, lived in Garbage City, was a Christian, and he decided that he, after seeing the man's name on the watch, that he would track him down and return the watch. And he did. And when this poor man returned the watch to the wealthy man, he told him this. He said, my Christ told me to be honest until the day I die. Now, because of the garbage man, the act of honesty and obedience to Christ, this Egyptian businessman later told the reporter, I didn't know Christ at the time, but I saw Christ in him. And I told them, I told him, because of what you have done, and because of your great devotion to Christ, I will worship this Christ you think of. And this young Egyptian businessman, he started to read the Bible. He started to investigate Christianity. Well, eventually he gives his life to Jesus, Eventually, he becomes a pastor, and in 1978, he started his own church right outside of Garbage City. And I just think about that poor man. That poor man could have seen that watch as an incredible temporary investment in his own life. Right? That could have changed the, his next decade. But instead, he saw it not as his own, but as a way to invest in friends for the next life. That's what this passage is teaching. I just pray you see your resources in the same way. That you use your resources to bless others in need, especially those who don't know Jesus. Right? And invite them out to hang out with you. Take them out to eat with you when we can do that again someday. And pay for them. Share about Jesus. Take them with you to a, to a Vikings game when they play in 2023 or whenever that happens, right? And, and share about Jesus. You know, when I was a youth pastor, we would sometimes have kids that didn't know Christ that would start hanging around our youth group. And, you know, we'd be advertising for the next big retreat or the next missions trip. And every once in a while, we'd hear that the kids who weren't even Christians would say, I kind of want to go on this retreat or this trip. And listen, there was always somebody in the church that we could talk to, that we'd tell them about the situation. And we'd say, hey, this kid doesn't know Christ. They really want to go on this trip, but honestly, they can't afford it. And there would always, it was easy to find people that would say, I will pay for that. I'm 100% in on that. And sometimes those kids would find Jesus on that trip. 
That's what this passage is talking about. You know, that reminds me of uh, one of the ways that my wife, Lindsay, and I personally apply this teaching, uh, which is by strongly believing in the need to financially invest in our kids' spiritual lives and eternal destiny. Now, I can't purchase anyone's salvation, right? But I can prioritize my spending in a way that I can do everything in my power to help my kids have as many positive experiences with Jesus as possible. So this is what it looks like for us and what it might look like in the future. Some of it is just really simple. Like one of the really simple things we do is I, I buy, we buy our kids a brand new children's Bible every single year, just a different version. We invest in it to just keep them immersed in and excited about the word of God. Uh, we invest in paying for them to go to VBS every summer. And now that our uh, oldest kids are old enough, uh, we're investing for them to go to Christian camp every summer. And that's not cheap. But listen, don't we all spend the same amount of money or maybe even more on all of our kids' athletic endeavors and camps every single summer? And will our kids even care about soccer or volleyball or band camp by the time that they're 35. This is what Jesus is saying. He wants you to prioritize. That's a key word. He wants you to prioritize eternal investments over the things that are gonna have such short-term payoffs in your life and in your family's life. Here's another way to look at it as kids get older. When your kids get in youth group, pay for them. Invest in this. Save money for this. Pay for them to go on every single retreat, conference, missions trip, invest in it. Listen, this is, we're talking about eternal investment, eternal payoff here. Not like, oh, this sport or this educational activity is going to help them when they're 25 or 45. We're talking millions of years in the future. So I'm going to save up for this. I'm going to make time in the schedule for this because it has an eternal value. Or here's sort of an out-of-the-box one I want to throw at you. You know, a lot of us, uh, we, when coronavirus is over, we think about, oh, what's the next big vacation I could take, right? And maybe a couple years from now, you're planning to go to Hawaii, or you're going to go to Disney World again. What about, I almost hear no one talk about this, but what about saving up your money to go visit the Holy Land? Walk with your family where Jesus walked. See where he rose from the dead. Build faith into your family. Consider making more eternal investments in your life and in your family's life. And then think about how this passage ended today. So look at the very end of verse 15. Jesus says, What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. That is a shocking verse. It's shocking. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. See, all of the things, all the experience that our world seems to put such priority on, Jesus says is detestable to God the Father. Don't try and just walk past that. He says it's detestable. You know, one of the reasons it's detestable is because all of these things that we value so highly in our life have such short-term payoffs. They're temporary. They're not eternal. So I want you to take this passage, maybe this week in your devotions or at breakfast or late at night, read it again. I want you to take this to the Lord. If you're married, talk about it with your spouse and say, what does this mean? What does this mean for us? And how we use what we have that is actually God's. And I pray that God uses it to do amazing things for you. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much 
for your life. Everything that we have is yours. May we be good stewards of it, and may we bring you glory, God, in how we spend our money and spend our time. In your name we pray. Amen.